0: First readings from John, chapter 15, verse 26. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you must also also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue, in fact, the time is coming when, any, when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me, and that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. And our second Bible reading is from Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the, and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and the bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it.
1: Thanks, Tricia. I'd uh, say keep your Bibles open at some passage, but I don't know what passage, because we're going to be jumping all around tonight. Tonight, uh, we break from our uh, regular practice of going systematically through the Scriptures, which we do periodically to break from that and uh, have a topical or doctrinal sermon, uh, as you can see tonight, on the Canon of Scripture. What on earth is that? Well, I've got to pray first and then we'll talk about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word and by the power of your spirit that's at work within us, uh, to strengthen us in the faith and to help us become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray that's exactly what would happen now as we consider this topic uh, that your word gives rise to, uh, that you'd help us to concentrate. And we uh, ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our modern english bibles contain 66 books 39 that make up the old testament and 27 that make up the new all throughout history just as jesus and his apostles were attacked for what they held to be god's revelation well so too the church has often at various times and in many ways been attacked for what it holds to be god's genuine revelation as well One such attack is the suggestion that the books that make up our Bibles were included only on the basis that they served the political interests of those who had the power during the time those books were forming the New Testament. Uh, You might even have heard someone uh, parrot that old idea that poor Roman Emperor Constantine in the third century basically decided the Bible with the books he liked and got rid of the ones he didn't and P.S. he made up the Trinity. Another attack comes from the notion that the original manuscripts said one thing, but as each one got copied and passed on, copied and passed on, copied and passed on. Inevitably, little mistakes were made. And like now a 2,000 year long game of Chinese whispers, what we have now could be significantly different to what the Bible writers wrote back then. Issues like these are concerned with a topic that we call the canon of Scripture. A canon is not the big gun. Uh, a canon, in, in theological speak, uh, is just a Greek word that means rule or standard. It actually originally referred to a literal measuring rod by which you can determine the, the fixed measure of something. Um, uh, for example, Paul, the Apostle, writes in Galatians 6.16, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. And that word rule there is the Greek word canon. Peace and mercy to those who follow this standard. Uh, it's the standard by which you judge something to be legitimate or illegitimate. Pretty simple. Now, when it comes to the Bible, canon actually gets used in two senses there's the standard by which our faith is determined and practiced, and that happens to be the Bible. The Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Uh, And that's true for any and every follower of Jesus. The Bible is the canon. But in another sense, the second one, the canon of Scripture can also be used to refer to the standard of the Bible itself. That is, what books are in the canon? And what books ought to be excluded from the canon? Uh, Should some of those 66 books that make up our Old and New Testament uh, not be in the Bible? Or are there some other books that are not part of the 66 that should be in the canon? And can all the words of each book that we have in the Bible be said to be the genuine Word of God issued without error? Well, if you care about the first kind of canon, the first standard, which by definition all Christians will, then you'll be really concerned to know that the Bibles we have can reliably be called the genuine Word of God and that's actually the issue I'm addressing tonight in our topical talk on the canon of Scripture. So let's get stuck into it. If you happen to be a note taker, uh, we're now at point one, Jesus and the Old Testament canon. For the early church, the first canon, the first standard, was and is Jesus himself. Jesus himself is the first canon, the first standard for the church. Who he is and what he said, some of which was almost certainly written down during his own lifetime, before the gospels were produced that was considered as the standard of God's revelation. If Jesus said it, then there was no question. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul mentioned that one of the particular mar- commands he was giving the church, uh, he, he, it also happened to be a command that he was relaying that Jesus himself had given earlier on. Uh, In case you're interested, uh, interestingly, the the command's about a wife not separating from her husband. Jesus himself taught in the Great Commission that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And note, teaching them to obey everything I have already commanded you. History tells us that even before the four Gospels were written, the early Church, who had an established Old Testament canon, were thoroughly comfortable to say, Jesus says, in just the same way that they could say, the Scripture says. Therefore, what Jesus made of the Old Testament, what Jesus thought the Old Testament was, well, that's what we must make of the Old Testament. That's what we must think the Old Testament is. So, what was the Old Testament according to Jesus? Well, I'll tell you. Jesus would use the singular word, the Scripture, every now and then, to speak about an accepted body of literature that even his enemies from among the Pharisees never disputed. Jesus could say to some Pharisees, you've read in the Scripture, and they would debate about what they've read, but they'll never debate that it was Scripture or not. So there was, there was an accepted body of literature. And what was that body of literature? Well, on one occasion, when Jesus was debating with some Jewish religious leaders, and I've got to warn you, he was debating very fiercely, he said to them, upon you, Will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah. Basically Jesus saying you guys are pretty much guilty for killing all the prophets. Now initially that little saying should sound a bit strange to us because elsewhere and I'm sure many of you will be familiar with this, Jesus taught that prophets were actually being murdered all the way up to the time of John the Baptist who subsequently was beheaded and, and murdered by the time Jesus was saying these words. But the way that Jews organised their Old Testament was a little bit different to how we currently have it. The, the, the Hebrew Old Testament began with the book of Genesis, but it ended with two chronicles. You see, they divided up uh, with, with a threefold order, uh, the law, the prophets and the writings. Uh, It is exactly the same 39 books, we know this from history, it's the same 39 books we have in our English Bibles, it's just that they had them in a different order. And if Jesus wanted to attack the religious leaders of his day by saying that their killing of the prophets was just so rife and so extensive, well, a really brilliant and and sort of heavy-handed way of doing it was to point out the, the entire breadth of their Holy Scripture testified they murdered God's prophets. And what do you know? Abel gets murdered near the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, you probably knew that. And Zechariah, son of Berechiah, who you probably didn't know, gets murdered near the end of 2 Chronicles, the last book of the Hebrew Bible. You see, when Jesus wants the whole Old Testament in view, he speaks of the beginning and end of the same set of 39 books that you and I have in our English Bibles today, albeit in a different order. Interestingly, two centuries before Jesus said those words, some Jews living in uh, the Greek city of uh, Alexandria had produced a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Some copies of that translation included an additional varying selection of books that later became known as the I wonder if anyone knows Apocrypha well done Jesus made little if any use of the Greek Old Testament and there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that he gave any credence to the books of the Apocrypha as being scripture and that doesn't surprise me because here's a couple of teachings from the books that are included in the Apocrypha, the command to use magic, the forgiveness of sins by almsgiving, you give money to the poor, you get your sins forgiven, and the offering of money for the sins of the dead to sort of get them out of trouble. It's not exactly consistent with the teaching of the Torah, which all Jewish sects held to be sacred scripture. Over a millennium and a half after the Apocrypha was written, the Roman Catholic Church officially accepted it as being part of their canon of Scripture. And that was in 1546 at the Council of Trent, which was a council formed to kind of counter the Reformation. The Reformers held, rightly, that the Church does not grant authority to various books, but actually recognises the inherent authority in what God has revealed. The Roman Catholic Church vehemently rejected that idea, holding that the church does get to decide, the church does grant authority to various texts. And they made a real big point about it by including a series of books for which the evidence strongly suggests that Jesus, the apostles and most of the early church leaders did not regard as scripture. Now, there is another really big piece of evidence to show that the 39 books of our Old Testaments are what Jesus himself knew and recognised as canon. But for the sake of time, I'm going to assume I'm pretty much preaching to the choir and you can, of course, hit me up in the connect form or uh, question time if we have one, if you want to know what that other evidence is. But put simply, the Old Testament you have in your hand is the Old Testament Jesus knew as the Bible. And that brings us to point two, The apostolic deposit. Uh, In the famous upper room discourse, you know, where Jesus had the last supper and all his disciples were hanging around, it's in John's Gospel and and, and he, he gave a lot of teaching. In that famous upper room discourse, Jesus spoke at length about the personal work of God, the Holy Spirit. One of the biggest roles that the Spirit would undertake would be to remind the apostles of Jesus' current and future teachings. So, John 14, 26, Jesus says in the upper room, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you, and he's speaking to his apostles, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Later on, during that same Last Supper, Jesus also says, But when he, the Spirit of Truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears... And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. That body of teaching from Jesus, all that he had commanded during his earthly ministry and all that he would continue to teach his apostles in order that they might bear witness would be given by God the Holy Spirit. After Jesus' death and resurrection, if you remember, the Apostles spent time cowering in fear in a locked room, which is why they got freaked out when Jesus came without opening the door and stood among them, you know, kind of funny. But then after the day of Pentecost, when the risen ascended Jesus poured out His Holy Spirit, we see in those same Apostles this huge black and white transformation. Transformation. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 8, Peter, speaking in front of a gathering of rather indignant Jewish leaders, was declaring to them that Jesus was the Christ. And as he gave that speech, we're told it's well, the power of the Holy Spirit at work within him, which is why we're not surprised that those religious leaders were baffled as to how he knew so much and could speak so boldly, such that they said, and we're told, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The only thing they can come up with is somehow Jesus taught them really good or maybe somehow he's still teaching them. You see, Jesus really did give his Holy Spirit to his Apostles such that they could be reminded of all that he had taught and know all that he was continuing to teach them. That body of teaching obviously included the entirety of the Old Testament, which they already had in writing, as well as the teaching about what fulfills the Old Testament expectations and applies them to the new humanity that God was establishing. That body of teaching is what we might call the apostolic deposit. And the Apostle Paul near the end of his life, told a non-apostle, namely Timothy, to guard that good deposit. And not surprisingly, with the help of the Holy Spirit, who lived not only in Paul, an apostle, but also now in Timothy, a not-apostle. He also told Timothy to make sure that others would learn it and know it and would be able to teach it. That body of teaching would be recognised by the way it accords with both the established Scriptures and the witness of the Apostles, such as Paul. Uh, The Apostle Peter would refer to the writing of the Apostle Paul as Scripture, which will mean that those who received and passed on this apostolic deposit would not only have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the teaching of the uh, original Apostles, but that it would now include the writings of Paul. I did a fair bit of research to look at this stuff this week and according to Dr Lee MacDonald, who is uh, arguably the foremost expert on the construction of the Canon of the New Testament, at least, at the very least, seven of Paul's 13 letters were in circulation among the churches, being read out just as they would have other scripture read out, the Old Testament, by the end of the first century. So, it's not surprising that we read in 2 Peter, chapter 2, from verse 15, Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. It's like the same juice we got, you know, he's got it as well. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Yeah, no kidding. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do... The other letters that other people have written. No. You're still awake? You see it? They distort Paul's writing as they do the other scriptures. To summarise, the apostolic deposit is the word ministry of Jesus given by him during his life and continued by his spirit through the apostles after his departure. It was then passed on to various church leaders who naturally gravitated to the writings of the Apostles, or those closely associated with Apostles, for example, uh, the Gospel writer Luke. The apostolic deposit is the thing that determined what Christians have by and large unanimously since the third century, if not before, come to recognise what is the inherently authoritative word of God that in fact makes up the 27 books of our New Testament. Uh, To quote from the current principal of Moore Theological College, our very own Dr Mark Thompson, Jesus testifies that the Old Testament is the word of God and his personal commissioning of the apostles as his ambassadors set up the basic architecture of the Bible that we have in our hands today. And that, therefore, nicely brings us to the third point of the formation of the New Testament canon. How did it come into being? Now, again, for the sake of time, I'm going to operate on the very reasonable assumption that 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament were never seriously disputed by the early Church. 20 for sure, 1, there was a bit of back and forth for a while, right? But I'm going to take it, 21. I say this because in some time, roughly around 340 AD, this ancient historian named Eusebius of Caesarea took it upon himself to write a little ecclesiastical history, as you do when you're bored in the afternoon, right? Write a little ecclesiastical history. Uh, In Book 3, Book 3 of the 10 books that he wrote... Uh, chapter 25, Eusebius gave a list of what had generally been recognised and accepted by everyone in the early Church. There's even a fancy word for it, homo legumina, that everyone just recognises is legit, right? He listed in that list the four Gospels, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, all of Paul's 13 letters, 1 John and 1 Peter. Incidentally, he also mentions the Apocalypse of John, for which we have a different name. Anyone tell me the name? What do we call the Apocalypse of John? Revelation, singular, correct. Uh, As being disputed, but ultimately agreed upon more than the others that were left out. You see, it's the other six books, Hebrews, James, Jude... 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, about which there were varying levels of dispute and were in the, in the second uh, century and third century. There was also dispute about books that were ultimately rejected from our New Testament canon, including, and I bet you haven't heard of this one, the Acts of Paul, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Epistle of Barnabas, and the apocalypse of peter which is sad because that sounds like such a cool title the apocalypse of peter peter says all sorts of crazy things and with apocalypse that could be cool anyway <laughs> eusebius also gave us a list of works that were recognized by everyone homo legumina, as quote absurd and impious and had been deemed by anyone who read them pretty much as heretical these included The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Matthias, and this is a funny one, the Acts of Andrew and John and the other Apostles. It's kind of like all the other Apostles need to get a Guernsey, you know, so... But in the way that Eusebius spoke about why the Church, in its general entirety, rejected those works, we actually get a really good glimpse into how the early Church operated in accordance with upholding... The apostolic deposit. Regarding the thoroughly rejected books, Eusebius writes, and further, the character of the style is at variance with apostolic usage and both the thoughts and the purpose of the things that are related in them are so completely out of accord with true orthodoxy that they clearly show themselves to be the fictitious of heretics." which would make a good heavy metal album, by the way, The Ficticians of Heretics. Put simply, these rejected works were so obviously not by the apostles, nor the close associates of the apostles, nor was their message able to be reconciled with the sound doctrine we have in the apostolic deposit. That is the basis upon which those final six books that we do now have in our Old Testament ended up being included in the canon just as much as it was the basis upon which these heretical books were excluded. Now, it's true, as I hope you can see, that there is indeed a certain messiness to the history of the New Testament canon formation. But that should be no more surprising than the fact that even with the scriptures long held to be canonical and authoritative, it has always been the case that there simply are those who recognise the voice of the Good Shepherd and those that do not. Even the Pharisees who had all the scriptures still didn't recognise the voice of God within them. If God the Son was willing to enter into creation to take on human flesh and yet remain the eternal Word of God, John 1.1, then it's not surprising that the very human agency by which the Scriptures were written need not somehow prevent God from communicating exactly what He saw fit to communicate. To quote the great Reformer, John Calvin, "'Let this point therefore stand, "'that those whom the Holy Spirit has inwardly taught "'truly rest on Scripture.'" and that Scripture, indeed, is self-authenticated. And the certainty it deserves with us, it attains by the testimony of the Spirit. It was, indeed, the providence of God, by the work of His Holy Spirit, that the early Church arrived at the point where they recognised the authority of the now 27 books that make up our New Testament. So what, then, with issues of translation, which probably also includes issues of transmission. As I'm sure most of you guys will know, the Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew and the New Testament was written mostly in what we call Koine or Common Greek, Street Greek. Unless you're fluent with those languages, the chances are you'll prefer an English translation of the Bible. That translation can be as much an art as a science is absolutely no impediment to God the Holy Spirit ensuring that the written word takes root in our hearts and minds. In fact, one of the many things God the Spirit did on the day of Pentecost whilst making himself known was, in fact, to enable people from many different language groups to hear the word of God proclaimed in their own dialects. Translation from one language to another works on a spectrum at the one end you've got very easy readability at the other end you've got the closest thing you can get to a word for word sort of accuracy thing going on the more easily readable the less accurate but the more accurate the less easy it is to read so you've got to make a choice but brothers and sisters in our case we are absolutely spoiled. For choice if ever you have an issue grasping what the word of God is saying in one English translation simply pick up another one and compare be amazed just how much clarity you can gain through looking at how the translators have approached things there's um this weird sort of movement that's been going on for I don't know how long uh, that I kind of think as uh, the, the flat earthers of the theology world, um, where there's this weird idea, I don't even know where it came from, that the King James translation is somehow the absolute gold standard of, of, of revelation of God to the point that any others are considered, frankly, useless. Uh, it you're selling yourself real short because you've got all these other ones that you could use to compare and get more of the Word of God. If you want more of the Word of God, you can't possibly ever be a King James Version only kind of a person. It's absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, what then of the textual variants within the books that our English Bibles often tell us about down the bottom of the page? You ever seen that in the bottom page of your Bible? It says some manuscripts do not have or some manuscripts have and you always wondered about what that little bit is? Yeah, 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 no, yeah, good. Well, tonight's the night. We're going to address this issue head on. This here is the Greek New Testament fourth revised edition with a dictionary that was given to me in my first year at Moore Theological College. I'm opening it up to some really easy Greek, namely Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. You can't see it, so I've taken a big photo of that page and I've put it on the screen. Now, that very top line that you can see there next to the number one, you see the top line there next to the little one starts with a thing that looks like an apostrophe, then an A, right? That's uh, Arche to Evangeliou Yesu Christu Huiou Theou. Arche is like ruler or if it's first in the beginning, the beginning to Evangeliou of the good news, right? The gospel, Yesu Christu. I wonder what that could mean. Huiou Theou, Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But there's a problem. Do you notice those last two words? I'll put a little circle around them there have little square brackets around the outside of them. That means there's an issue. There's a footnote, if you can see, I don't know how we. Oh, yeah, you can probably see that. Footnote number one, right? And uh, it directs you to what's called the apparatus, uh, in this case, apparatus one. And the first thing you'll see there in the braces is the letter C. You can all see that letter C? Good. If that letter were to be an A, it would mean that the translation committee for the, this Greek Bible were unanimous that the bracketed words are certain. If the letter there were to be B, it would mean that the translation committee were almost certain that this was in the original manuscript. C, however, which what we do have here, indicates that the committee had difficulty deciding which variant to place in the text. It might not be huiu fe'u, there could be something else. In this case, there are five possible variants. For each one, we're shown the variation, followed by information that tells you every possible collection of full or partial fragments that have been come through all sorts of archaeological digs all throughout time. That have that particular variant. So, the first possibility, variant one, as we can see there, there it is. The first possibility is what the translators have ended up going with: uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God. And then there's all these little letters after it says that. Beginning with that funny squiggly thing that looks like an X, but it's actually uh, it's the letter Aleph, which is the first uh, letter of the, the Hebrew alphabet, and all of those letters are little codes for various collections of ancient texts that are being copies of Mark chapter one verse one. Now, in this case, the Aleph refers to a fourth-century full text of the Bible. Uh, it's really famous. One it's called Sinaiticus. And it has the words Christu Huiu Theu in Mark 1, Christ, Son, God. The B there, you see the little B, the big capital B next to the Aleph, it means that another fourth century text called Vaticanus, which has all the New Testament books minus Revelation, also has Christu Huiu Theu in Mark 1 1. The D refers to a 5th century text, the L is for an 8th century text, the W is for another 4th century text, and then you've got that weird number 2427, you all see that one? That refers to what's called a minuscule, possibly a fragment, not a full text, or a parchment that happened to contain this particular part of uh, uh, Mark's Gospel. But then we come to the next possible variant. Instead of Christu huiu Christ the son of god there are a bunch of ancient manuscripts that have get this christu huiu tu theu which translates Christ the son of god it's just that before the word god we have what's called the definite article like a little bit like the right and it's to make you know that it's not Christ, the Son of some random God, but Christ, the Son of the God, the God that He's the Son of. <laughs> and there's this huge smattering of manuscripts, minuscules, full text and partial texts, along with a bunch of early church fathers. You see the name Jerome down there or Origen or Clement? I can't read it but it'll be something like that. Oh, it's right here. Um... Ambrose, uh, Crematius, Jerome, Augustus, Faustus, Milibus, right? So those guys have quoted from a source and their writings exist and in theirs it has Christu, Huiotu Tu, Theu. Um, then you've got another variation where some later manuscripts and a bunch of people who quoted it just had the word Christ without the Huiu Theu, without the Son of God. For them, you know, Christ is good enough, we know He's the Son of God, just write Christ. So, on balance, the original manuscripts, the original Mark's Gospel, most likely, almost certainly, had either Christ the Son of God or Christ the Son of God with a the. And because the translation committee could not agree, based on all the evidence, they left the phrase in brackets and they gave us all the information we possibly need to make a call on something that makes absolutely no difference whatsoever to the meaning of Mark chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> but you see, far from being like Chinese whispers, the fact that you've got loads and loads of copies actually push, pushes you towards, not away from, accuracy because you can compare and contrast and work out what is almost certainly, if not certainly, the original document. There are thousands of people, Christian and non-Christian, with all sorts of theological positions who are experts in their various fields of linguistics, textual analysis, ancient languages, hermeneutics, history, all pouring relentlessly over every single possible textual variant or inconsistency on thousands of complete or partial manuscripts to ensure we get the most accurate reading possible and even then, the parts of the Bible over which there's debate are so relatively few and so relatively small, including spelling errors, that no doctrine could ever be said to hang on them. You can trust your English Bible translations. Um, Three quick implications, because I know I've gone for a long time. Firstly, as we read the Scriptures, we are encountering the clear and present Word of God, the Word communicated by God in His chosen method. Given that it's original in scripturation, if I can make up a word, was made possible only by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit in the Apostles. And given that only those indwelt by the Spirit can accept it, well, it follows that God himself, in the person of the Spirit, ensures that as his word is read today, it achieves the purpose for which he gave it. Um, I went to this wacky occult store recently, a bookstore, right, with witchcraft and magic and, and satanic stuff. And, um, and I got a book of satanic spells and curses. <laughs> and I've never looked at this before, I thought maybe I'll just read one out at church and see what happens, alright? Are you ready for this, this uh, satanic spell? I just lied through my teeth, of course I don't, this is just a random book I picked up from my shelf. But were you all a little bit worried about that or interested? Like, is it, what's going to happen if he, if he reads some occult magic or satanic spell? Does that make you a little bit worried or nervous or even excited, right? Yeah, that's all a load of rubbish. But the Word of God is illuminated by the Spirit of God, whenever you read it, if you were nervous or worried, you're excited by what something that I just made up would do, well, you can have legit excitement or anticipation about what is truly the Spirit-inspired Word of God. You should be excited about your Bibles, people. Secondly, as God's Word... Uh, scripture is God speaking to us, it obviously remains the case therefore that the Bible is the final or the highest authority in all matters of faith and practice. We so easily get this wrong. You see, we don't interpret God's Word by our experience. The right way is to interpret our experience by God's Word. God's Word calls on us to employ our reasoning, it's very rational. But if our reasoning contradicts God's Word then our reasoning is in need of modification, not the Word of God. It's very reasonable according to most people in our world and culture to assume that dead people stay dead and they don't come alive again but that's not what the Word of God reveals. Well, your reasoning needs to be modified. There is one dead person who did come alive again and one is all it takes to prove it's a possibility. Tradition has an important place in the household of God but if any tradition is found to be unsupported by the Word of God then the tradition needs to be changed or abandoned no matter how cherished it may have been. Last but not least, something to watch out for that I think threatens the spiritual inspiration of the Word of God and it's being seen as the highest authority is what I call the heresy of the false dichotomy. Now what's a false dichotomy? It's when you challenge someone by saying look it's either got to be this way or that way when in reality it can quite legitimately be both i'll give you two examples of the heresies of false dichotomy that are used to undermine scripture example number one when jesus speaks it's the word of god but the apostle paul take it or leave it jesus speaks truth the apostle paul don't like him, there are some things he got wrong. I'm not going to give him as much authority uh, in his writing as I'll grant to Jesus. That's a false dichotomy. Because the moment you say, I'm not going to listen to Paul, or think I can pick and choose from what Paul writes, is the moment you've said, Hey, Jesus, the guy you legit appointed to be your ambassador. Is a guy I say, nah, get lost. So, Jesus, it's like I'm saying, I don't trust you either. Um, Paul happens to be uh, Jesus' commissioned Apostle to the Gentiles, three times in the book of Acts, you've got Paul recounting his meeting with Jesus and the commissioning that Jesus gave him. If you're a Gentile, frankly, Paul is your guy. Um, the, the Jews have got like 11 apostles, right? Paul's the one apostle you've got to the gender. Don't knock your own apostle, right? You, you, you sort of dis on Paul and in effect, you're saying, get lost, Jesus. You can't do it. You read Paul, you're reading the messenger, just like the other apostles that Jesus is employing. Here's another one, this one really gets me, Are you ready? Christians don't actually believe in the Bible... They believe in Jesus. Jesus, who is loving and kind. And the Bible is kind of like a helpful, sort of second tier thing. Now, at one level, of course, it's true, we worship Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the Saviour. He's the, the risen Lord and King who will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is my God and I worship Him. I will worshiper of Jesus through and through because I'm a Christian. The Bible, at one level, is a book With lots of words in it right i don't worship a bible but if i do worship jesus and i do know him as my lord and my god then i will know that every word that proceeds from the mouth of god is really really vital and important that i listen to so the moment i pit my lord against his own revelation is the moment i come up with a heretical false dichotomy and you'd be surprised how often that false dichotomy gets thrown around When people want to discredit various parts of the Bible and still maintain this notion that they are followers of Jesus. I've spoken more than I planned on speaking, so I'm going to pray, and it's up to Patrick if you have question time or not. We still um, connect forms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks, and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you've ensured that your written word is indeed the clear and present word of God. And that when we open it and read it, uh, we are hearing our Heavenly Father speak to us uh, about the Son and through, through the power of the Spirit. Heavenly Father, may you um, guard us from relegating uh, the Scriptures to uh, second or third place. And may you guard us against failing to live with your word as the standard in all matters of faith and practice. And may you equip us for the many attacks that we rightly expect on the validity and the historicity of your holy word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.